Good morning, Exchange. I hope you are well and uh, you have um, just enjoyed that time uh, this morning of engaging the Lord and, and just honestly just being truthful with who He is and declaring some of those things that your heart may need to remember. Sometimes it's easier to get our mouths where they need to be than our hearts uh, where they need to be. And so, um, you know, I would encourage you as, as best as you can uh, on some of those lyrics that we put up on the screen, as we're singing those, uh, meditate on them and think about what we're singing here and say that you are holy and it pushes us even in the way that we read the text, even in the way that we uh, look through Scripture and we place it against ourselves and the position of our lives. And we say, God, if you're holy, I know that I'm not, but I know that you love me. And so I know that I must submit to these words. And so that's where we're at today. We're in John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. And uh, it's continuing the story uh, that John is writing for us and the case that John is making for us about Jesus and that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good prophet. He's not a kind man. He is either God, uh, a liar, or a lunatic. He's either someone who says, I can take you safely to the Father, and he promises that he will do that, or he's a liar that says that he can do that and really does not. He deceives us. Or he's just a crazy person and thinks that he can, but he can't. And so John is making this case for us about the, the authority of Jesus, but also the deity of Jesus uh, and the acts that he does, the signs that he gives, and also the things that he says. And so today is very uh, important. It's a, it's a twist of the story uh, that we uh, ended last week with the miracle in Cana. It's a very different setting uh, when Jesus goes into the temple. And immediately you see something at stake, right? You see something that matters deeply to Jesus in a way that the temple was possibly defiled in a way or something uh, was wrong with how it was supposed to be. It reminds me right now, I don't know if you've ever uh, had something nice in your life. Most of the time uh, when we, we have three children, so most of the time we th say things like, this is why we can have nothing nice, right? Uh, this is why uh, we don't have new cars, or this is why all the things, right? So at the moment, our house is on the market. Uh, we're not moving anywhere far distance. I will be here for a very long time, Lord willing. So our house is on the market, but what that means is uh, my wife uh, is keeping it very clean for showings, um, and it means that me and the boys specifically uh, have to eat snacks over the kitchen sink, right? <laughs> You know, there's like one, it, it's not even if a crumb falls on the floor. It's just the possibility of a crumb falling on the floor. Yeah. After the, uh, all of the things have been cleaned, all of the, the, the counters have been wiped, everything's been mopped, everything is in show condition, you know, that's when me and Brody specifically get hungry. Yeah. And we want to go to the pantry and you just see Jana's face. Like, she's like, please, please, please don't do it, you know. And so last night we're over hovering over the sink together, like eating a brownie. You know, it's, it's a, honestly, it's a pitiful sight, you know. <laughs> and I just see this moment and it's like, I just like this, everything that I've done, right? Like you're about to ruin, right? And I, I just, there's this sense of the passage today where Jesus is coming to literally give us this incredible relationship with God to be the ultimate sacrifice, and he walks into the temple, which is supposed to be 
the, the, the symbol of the presence of God at that time, and it's completely defiled with garbage. I mean, just everything that the Father is not. And you see his reaction in the text. And so I think it's really important for us to look and see what's happening and why it's happening, what Jesus is saying, what he's doing, and what he's not saying, and what he's not doing. So let's read together uh, in John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out all the coins and money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, well, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews says, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture, the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So before we get out of the gate, it's good to bring to your attention that this circumstance might possibly be recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, let me explain. There's a temple cleansing in all four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we don't know if this is the same temple cleansing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place a temple cleansing at, at the beginning of the Holy Week, after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, uh, he enters the temple, and there's a circumstance very similar, if not almost identical, to this one. But John places it uh, somewhere different. He places it right after uh, the miracle at Cana and the wedding feast, at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. One thought is that this is a second or the first of two temple cleansings. The second view is that John is not nearly concerned with the chronological order as he is that he's simply making a case for Jesus' authority and deity. If that's the case, then John may have moved this story here to make the point about Jesus. Rather than giving us a timeline about Jesus' ministry, he's making a case about Jesus, who he is, what authority he has. But regardless, there's two things that are true. Uh, each gospel writer believes that this story or two very similar stories are important enough uh, to speak of it. Uh, Think about it this way. There's only 11 stories, only 11 stories in all of Scripture that are repeated in all Gospels. I've put them really um, short on the screen so that you could see this, but you have the baptism of John, the feeding of the 5,000. You have Peter's profession of faith that he is the Christ and the anointing of Mary, all before 
Holy Week. And then all of the rest of them belong to this last week of the life of Jesus, the triumphal entry, Last Supper, Gethsemane, the trials, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and quite possibly maybe this 12th story, which would be the temple cleansing. It's, it doesn't seem necessary to fit uh, all of the things that are listed here, especially uh, that last week of Jesus. What I'm trying to say is this, that all of the writers of the gospel seem to believe that this moment in Jesus' life is very significant. It's very significant. It's not just a story uh, where Jesus got angry. This is not a lesson for us on how to control our anger. This is a lesson for us in the deity and the authority of Christ. And all of the gospel writers believe that this is important enough to repeat over and over and over and over again. And so we see this um, temple cleansing happening. Uh, the second thing that we need to understand is, is that whether this is one story or two, it's really important for Jesus to be in Jerusalem during the Passover, as with uh, the rest of the Jews. Uh, we know that if this is two stories, then Jesus would have walked over 100 miles from Capernaum, uh, where the uh, last story left Jesus. Um, and it was the same way for many Jews in surrounding areas. It's hard to have numbers of the population of Jerusalem during this time, but Passover figures uh, would say that the city would swell to hundreds of thousands, if not millions. We come to this number because Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh, would say that there was over 256,000 lambs slaughtered on the day of Passover. 256,000 lambs. One lamb would be the sufficient sacrifice for one family. So at the most conservative numbers on the average family size, let's say five, it was more like 10 in that day, but let's just say the most conservative on an average family size of five, so five people to one lamb, would put the city at numbers of about 1.3 million people. It's a lot of people that would swell into Jerusalem uh, at this time. So there was this uh, law also, this rabbinic uh, literature tells us uh, that if you lived in Jerusalem, you were, um, you were kind of obligated to open your home uh, for visitors during Passover, uh, especially without charging rent. So it would be an obligation for you to allow visitors in. Jesus, we know, often stayed with Lazarus, Mar Martha, and Mary uh, when he visited uh, Jerusalem. Of course, space would be limited, uh, and so people would also camp uh, around the temple, the tabernacle. John uh, later tells us in John chapter 11 about this and how many people entered the city. He says this in another story. He says, uh, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country prior to the Passover in order to purify themselves. So it wasn't just the day of Passover. It was the whole season. About a month ahead of time, people would begin pouring into uh, Jerusalem. And of course, more people meant more profit. Of course, the businessmen in Jerusalem would do well during this time, like food trucks, vendors, and little souvenir shops might be doing right now in Las Vegas. Jesus is there too in Jerusalem and watching all of this unfold. And so our story takes us back in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went into Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and the money changers seated at the table. Uh, author, pastor Skip Hezek makes a note. 
that verse, verse high, uh, 14 highlights that Jesus found those in the temple who sold oxen, sheep, doves, money changers doing business. And he brings out that this little phrase, who sold, in the Greek, uh, has this definite article. Uh, it's these words, taus potelonis. Uh, it's the sellers. It's like this identifiable group of people who were known as the sellers. Those were these guys, you know, the mob of Jerusalem, if you will. They were known to take advantage of travelers and more important, worshipers. You can imagine it was a difficult journey enough, especially if you were coming 100 miles or more like Jesus. And I'm not sure if you've ever attempted to walk a lamb 100 miles, but it wasn't easy. You can imagine uh, how difficult it would be also to keep that lamb spotless before you arrived at the temple. So it's very likely that even a well-kept lamb 100 miles away would stay at home. It would have almost no chance of making it to Jerusalem uninjured uh, before you reached your destination. So there was this pull to get to the temple, yet there was a hurdle to get your sacrifice there as well. And for those who dared to bring it closer distances, uh, found themselves uh, difficult to get past the inspectors. The rabbinic literature would tell us again that there's inspectors at the gates of the temple uh, that were inspecting each animal before it came in for sacrifice to make sure that it was indeed spotless and worthy of sacrifice. The problem is, is these inspectors were also partners with Ananias, the man who crucified Jesus. There was a corrupt system. And so you bring your lamb to the temple for sacrifice and they'd say, I'm really sorry, but this lamb has a blemish. And you'd say, "Where? Well, I don't see a blemish. And you say, but that's because you have been trained to see the blemish. I see it. Everyone else here sees it. I'm sorry, this sacrifice will not do. And they were forced to purchase a sacrifice. I would imagine it and picture it much like uh, the DMV temple system, you know. You can bring your entire file cabinet and every single piece of paperwork that you have at your house. And for some reason, there's one document that you don't have and you can't do anything about it. Imagine traveling 100 miles, bringing your lamb that you've guarded and protected for the first year of its life. And you've brought this as a temple sacrifice and you're told before you come in, I'm sorry, that won't do. Of course, some saw the opportunity to exploit this situation. And there were people who began selling uh, sacrificial animals near the temple. It was a needed uh, practice. But then it migrated into the temple. And not only were they selling these animals in the temple, they were acting as money exchangers as well. So foreign currency wasn't accepted in the temple either. And so they would find themselves needing to purchase these sacrificial animals, but also needing to purchase these animals uh, with the currency of Jerusalem, a shekel. And so it would cost them money. Uh, some theologians would say up to uh, a few hours or half a day's wage to just exchange money to be able to purchase the overpriced sacrificial animal. And then even uh, every half shekel was another half a day's wages, possibly. 
So your journey to the temple could end up costing you a massive amount. And I want, to, uh, want you to remember something as we talk through this, that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And so worship through the temple and sacrifice was the avenue that God had given Israel up until this point. So what was happening is all of these people who were desiring desperately to worship God in the way that he commanded and gave instructions to were coming in obedience and finding hurdles, massive hurdles placed in front of them that were not God's hurdles. It was as if man stepped in the way of Jesus and man stepped in the way of God and said, if you want to go to the Father, you have to go through me. And you have to go through my wallet, my system, and the things that I say that you have to do. So Jesus walks in and finds all of this happening. John writes in verse 15 that he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple area with sheep and oxen and he poured out all of the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Jesus is not happy. That's clear. And I think if social media existed at the time, we'd see many viral reels happening. Hashtag temple throwdown, right? But for Jesus, God in the flesh, there's something more at stake than overpriced lamb. It's that these religious rulers were placing hurdles in the path of those who truly desired to worship God, and it angers Jesus. It angers Jesus. There's a couple other times in Scripture where we see that Jesus became angry. Mark chapter 3 Uh, paints this picture, not just paints this picture, but gives us these words. Uh, He entered a synagogue again, and a man whose hand was withered, and they were watching him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm or to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. They stretched it out and his hand was restored. I mean, I remember getting that look as a kid. Do you? They're like, you need to stop what you're doing. Look. It's the look you get when you can't say anything, when your parents couldn't say anything, but they wanted and needed to stop whatever was happening. I can't imagine getting that look from Jesus. I'm sure that they didn't sleep well that night. And it happens again later on in Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him so that he would touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant or he was angry. And he said to them, allow the children to come to me. Do not forbid them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus was angered when others misrepresented the father. In each case, people were placing hurdles in front of God, saying, you have to go through me. You have to go through finances in the temple. You have to come here on a different day in the synagogue. You have to come here a different year for the children. And this absolutely goes against who God is, who He came for, and when we're able to call out to Him. I think this is what the Lord is mad about in this circumstance. 
is that he did not come for specific times and for rich people only. He did not come for adults only. He did not come for men only. He did not come for Jews only. God is making this point in this moment is that God is available to all people at all times and at all circumstances. This is important for us to remember because the enemy will attempt to deceive you in this. He's available for all people at all times in all circumstances. I love this simple verse from Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. I believe the enemy is constantly at work in this moment trying to sell us on the lie that you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. Sure, he knows your struggle, but it'll go a lot better if you just complete step one first. No, step one is going to him. Maybe he says you got to figure it out. You got to handle it. Enemies will tell you that you've, you've gone to him too many times and then failed too many times. You, you're done on your coming to him chances. It's not true. The enemy will tell you that you're not good enough, you're not reading your Bible enough, you're not coming to church enough, you're not serving enough, you're not giving enough, or you're not enough. The enemy will constantly try to lie to you and try to attempt to place all of these hurdles in front of you before you make it to Jesus. And like the religious rulers in the temple that day, he'll try to lie to you and say, hey, 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 before, before you think you're able to come and worship, before you're, think, you're able to come and confess, before you're able to come into the throne room and present your request, you've got to do all of these things. You've got to clean yourself up, man. You are filthy. You're, you're a terrible person. You've, did you even check yourself before you came in here? And I think Jesus, like he went into the temple would come and literally kick down all of those hurdles as he did when he left the throne of heaven to come and be with us as God with us. Over and over and over again, Jesus in his life is declaring, there's no hurdles between you and God. I'm just asking that you'll come to me. Of course, there's another side of it too. I think the other side is an abuse of the loving kindness and this equally misrepresentation of who God is. In some of the synoptic gospels, we call those the, the similar or the parallel gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember we talked, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We talked about how John is different than those. He chooses to write differently. He chooses to, to use different stories, all of those things. And Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, they all record a similar story, if not the same story. But, but in that story, as Jesus is clearing the temple, I think it could have been twice. I think it could have been that Jesus went in after the miracle of Cana. Uh, he, he kind of pushed all the money changers away. Uh, they probably looked at themselves like, who was that? Why is he here? We'll see that in the text later. Jesus left Jerusalem. They were like, all right, back to business. You know? Jesus comes back again and again and does it again and again. It could be the same story as well. But in their story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses these words. Instead of just making this a place of business, he says, you're making my father's house a den of robbers. It's actually a nod to an Old Testament passage um, we see from Jeremiah. 
not just a nod, it's, it's actually a direct quote. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 7, where the prophet says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand at the gate of the house and proclaim this, uh, there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. So listen up, all you who come to, to the presence of the Lord and attempt to worship. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a person and his neighbor, if you do not oppress a stranger, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor follow other gods to your own ruin, then I'll let you live in this place, in the land that I gave you to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house and say my name, we're saved so that you might do all these abominations? Has the house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? And the moment that Jesus steps in the temple, at least in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus directly quotes this passage in um, Jeremiah 7. Watch what he's saying as he goes on. So I, then I, I think the people, then what they're happening, what's happening is that the people are trying to live however they want to throughout the week. And then they come into the temple and call on his name with full intention of going back to their sin. Saying, it's okay because we're saved. And he says that they've made this house into a den of robbers, trying to take advantage of his grace, robbing mercy from the throne. It's not the way that it works. And I believe that Jesus is quoting this passage in the same way uh, to the religious rulers who are absolutely corrupt and will sacrifice lambs at the Passover. And the same people robbing the Jews will come to worship uh, would also come to cry out to God as well. And what he's saying is, I think he's pushing back against both extremes. The one who come to the temple and find themselves placed all kinds of hurdles in front of them and say, I don't know if I can get in to worship. And he says, no, 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 that's not true. All of this goes away. I want you here. And then he's facing all of the religious rulers who says, no, I can live my life however I want. I can take advantage of the poor. I can go and do everything throughout the week. And I can come into the temple at Passover and say, we're saved. And then I'm good. And he says, that's not true. It's not true. It's not true that we can hold on to our sin with white knuckles throughout the week and come here or anywhere in the presence of God on Sunday and act as if we're actually in a mode and a spirit and a posture of repentance. Jesus says it's not possible. He says what, what you've done is you've tried to rob me of my mercy. You've tried to rob me of my grace. You've tried to rob me of the compassion that I have towards you. And you're holding on to your sin. While God gives grace freely, he demands sincerity. It doesn't mean that he demands perfection. If that were the case, not one person in this room would be able to come into the presence of God. 
but he does demand sincerity. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It does not mean that we don't fail. It doesn't mean that we won't fight daily against our sin. But it does mean this, that we won't hold on to it and try to hold on with the other hand to Jesus. He says, I need you to let go. I need you to come and follow me. I need you to repent and believe. This is the message of the Gospels. Often we see Jesus using these words, repent and believe. It's not the only Old Testament reference that Jesus makes in this passage. Both Jeremiah 7 and his disciples see a passage written about Jesus that speaks of his authority and also speaks of his deity in Psalm chapter 69. Verse 17, it says this, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus walks into the scene. He has this uh, dialogue, really monologue, with all of the religious rulers as they're running, tails tucked, right? I'm sure in absolute terror, as one would when the creator of the world gets mad at you. And his disciples have enough memory of the Old Testament to say, this reminds us of Psalm 69, where it says, for zeal of your house has consumed me and the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. So remember what we said about the disciples and how Jesus went after them and he asked them to follow him to be uh, his disciples. Now the disciples were tradesmen. They, they didn't make it far enough to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. They were fishermen, tax collectors. They were not the best of the best, but people who did not know scripture that well knew enough to know that this is Jesus. Psalm 69, for zeal of your house will consume me. They looked at this moment, they looked at Jesus and they said, this is the one. His authority is unmatched here. Can you imagine what this would have been like and how it would have been I mean, in realistic terms, in a story, uh, Jesus, Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, storms into the temple with a whip that he made. And he's driving everybody out, throwing tables, scattering money, chasing down oxen and lambs. Just the streets of Jerusalem are now in a panic, in a fury, as these oxen are running from the creator of the world. But they don't know that. They believe that this is just a, a crazy person, a madman. This would be extremely out of place. And the religious rulers uh, had not been running for their lives. They might stop and think about what Jesus said. I think this is the first time, at least in the book of John, that Jesus gives a nod to his public declaration of his relationship with the Father. And Jesus refers to the temple as not just our Father's house, but he says this, this is my Father's house. He's staking a claim on the temple, on the presence of God, as having a unique relationship with the Father that they did not have. It's my father's house. So of course, anyone who have heard this would have had a question. And they ask him the question in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, so what sign, Jesus, do you have? You're coming here, you're destroying the temple, you're destroying the whole system here. What sign do you have? And show us your authority to do these things. So Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. 
And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, Jesus. Armies of men, 46 years to build this temple. It's not possible for one person to rebuild it in three days. And I think without John's editorial note in, in verse 21, we might be tempted to think the same thing. And John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the de dead, the disciples remembered that he said this and they believed scripture and the word which Jesus would have spoken. I'm not sure that we would have gotten it either. I think there's this obvious question is why didn't he just come out and say it? When they say, all right, Jesus, give us a sign. Why didn't Jesus just come out and say, all right, I'll give you a sign, but it won't come for another few years. When you kill me, I'll raise from the dead in three days. Why did he say destroy the temple? I think for two reasons. One, to the Jews, the symbol of God's presence to them was the temple. It was the temple. And so he wasn't just saying destroy me. He was saying destroy the, the actual presence of God in your lives and it will come back. I think the second is that Jesus is having a little fun with the absurdity of his answer. It would have been uh, absolutely impossible for an army of hundreds to re the, rebuild the temple in three days, uh, much less one man. It took four, Herod 46 years. They obviously thought he was crazy. That would have been easy. It would have been easy for Jesus as the creator of the world who spoke creation into existence, who spoke all of the granite with one word, into existence that those men used to carve out the temple. It would have been easy for Jesus, the creator of the universe, to speak one word. As easy as breathing physical and spiritual life into humanity after he formed them from the dust of the ground. The physical rebuilding of the temple would have been easy. But Jesus wasn't talking about this physical temple. He was talking about the presence of God on earth, and he was talking about his resurrection. Jesus is absolutely, in, he's promising here his resurrection, and here's why that's important. Because everything that Jesus says hinges on these words. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, his credibility is zero. He's just an insane carpenter from Nazareth. But because he predicted that he would rise from the dead many times, if he didn't do it, he's a liar. But if he really did raise from the dead, then his credibility is perfect. If he really did do this, then any promise that he ever makes we can bet our lives on the promise of mercy, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of rest when you're tired of trying empty religion, the promise to bring us safely into the presence of God, the, present, the promise to return to us. And this is why it's so important to immerse yourself in Scripture. Because if Jesus really did raise from the dead, then everything he said is worth betting your life on. 
And that's what happened to the disciples. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed his signs, which he was doing. What's interesting to me is we, at this moment, we only have one. We only have one sign, and it's really Jesus clearing the temple and promising that he's going to rebuild the temple in three days, which is really raising from the dead. Who knows how many signs aren't recorded here. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and he, because he did not need anyone to testify about mankind for he himself knew what was in kind. What, what John is saying is this. Even though many people believed at this time, they saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name, uh, were reminded of the wide-range ministry that Jesus had undertaken and also were reminded that their faith or the people that would say that they would believe in him would also be the ones just a short time later that yelled, crucify. We want Barabbas. Many of those who followed him because of those signs would also walk away from him. Sadly, their faith was spurious and Jesus knew it. Unlike other religious leaders, he cannot be duped by flattery, enticed by praise, or caught off guard by innocence. His knowledge of men's hearts are profound, and his accounts of their part is this diversity as he approaches these individuals in the Gospels. So he didn't trust himself. It's as if the author is saying this, that Jesus didn't, it didn't matter to Jesus what people said about him or what they didn't say about him. He was laser-focused on the will and the words of the Father. That was where his mission came from. Jesus didn't let what people said or didn't say about him affect him, only what the Father said. The question is for us today is, who do you believe, Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? And are you willing to bet what you have on him? It's hard for me to to come up with an analogy that would even come close to what Jesus is asking. But the Gospels paint a a pretty clear picture later in life that that we would be literally hopeless. Hopeless without Christ. I wondered if maybe a scenario like you, you, uh, you want a free trip to the Super Bowl and it's in Vegas and you get off their flight and you walk into the hotel and you see a long line of people uh, who are lining up and they're walking away with a tray full of chips. And you're like, wow, they're just giving these things away. And so every person just walks away with this tray full of chips and you get to Get to play and have fun and, and, and uh, play all the games and do all the things, right? And so you go up there and they say, you know, just sign this little document and we'll give you this tray full of chips. And so you sign the little document and you go and you lose miserably everything, everything. But you're just there to have a good time and you're like, I didn't really lose any of my money or anything. And somebody comes up to you and says, man, it's, it's incredible that you can have this attitude about, about life after, after losing all of that. And you're like, losing all of what? He said, you didn't read the paper? I thought it was just saying that I wanted the chips. No. 
You, you send your home away and your cars away and your bank accounts away. You, you gave away everything. And the feeling hits you deep inside is you literally have no hope. No hope. In a way, the Gospels paint a picture much like that for us. Or maybe we go through life and we chase all of these different things. We think it's going to bring happiness. We think it's just, it's just kind of a game. It's just life. It's just what we do. And then at the end, at some point in our life, uh, conviction hits or we realize the mess that we've gotten ourselves in and we realize we have no hope. We have literally destroyed our lives. And Jesus says, I have hope, but you have to trust me. You have to literally bet your life on me. And that's what he's doing. In this passage, he's teaching us and pushing us to say, do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you really believe that he is the presence of God? And do you really believe that everything that he says? I would invite you to pray with me even now and ask the Lord to give us faith to believe. Lord, I thank you for this passage that's challenging and pushes us and makes us think and also makes us wonder what it would have been like to just watch you in this moment. We know, Lord, that there's something at stake, and we believe that it's, that it's what we think about or what we believe about the presence of God. Later on, we know, Jesus, that you use this word, that you would say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by you. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us faith to believe. Those of us who have placed our faith in you already, Lord, would you strengthen our faith that everything that you say is true? Lord, for those of us in the room who are currently in the spot that all of us in the room have been in, where we wonder, are you really who you say you are? Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to believe. Lord, I pray that this passage would push us to believe every single word that you have spoken, to claim every promise that you have given, and to trust you with every step of life that we take. Here's what I would ask today as we, we reflect and respond. Maybe you're having trouble trusting Jesus in an element, in a circumstance, in a place of life today. Maybe you've read one of his promises over and over and over again, and it just doesn't seem like that's even close to true for you. Maybe that's you today. And you just need to say, Jesus, I need to believe your promise. That everything that you have said is yes and amen. Would you let us pray with you today?
Would you let us help claim that promise for you today? I'm just asking as, as Jesse begins to lead us that you would uh, turn and just go back to one of our prayer partners. Let us take you by the hand, sit across the table for you, and claim a promise of Christ for you and with you. Maybe it's not just a promise of Jesus, but it's actually Jesus. You're struggling with this idea of, man, it's a lot to bet my life on. Would you just take that first step and and ask for prayer to say, man, I'm, I'm wrestling with this idea about Jesus. Would you just pray for me? There's, there's no one in the back that will condemn you, that will judge you, that will talk about your encounter. That they just, we just want to pray for you. Together, exchange, let's be a people who claim and hold on desperately to the promises of Christ.